to set, but I'm going to talk a little bit about reasonable expectations. Men, would you like to know what your wife expects of you? Would that help? Yeah, I really wish I could help you out. I can't. But here's something that someone said. Most women desire a man who makes them laugh and also feel safe. So basically, a clown ninja. Right? Guys, if you can be a clown ninja, we're happy. Yeah, haul that mouse out of the attic. You know, do things like that. That, that, um, Tony was the attic ninja the other day. Yeah. (laughs) Counselors say that a, a lot of marital conflict comes from competing expectations and priorities. Though often unspoken, expectations drive the spouse's agenda. Uh, Sometimes that leads to a collision, doesn't it? When you've got differing expectations. That happened with us. You know, when we first got married, we had differing expectations. And we had to work through those. And we did. Uh, One of the keys, though, is to be aware of the tendency to make your own opinion a moral issue rather than a preference. Really, these are our preferences. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's just what we prefer. I prefer that Tony is a clown ninja. You know, um, everybody comes in with those preferences. Matters of style and preference are personality issues. It's not right and wrong behavior. And so as a couple, you want to avoid moralizing or commenting on issues of right and wrong with an unfounded air of superiority. That's what it means to moralize, that your way is the right way. But avoid moralizing the styles of either one of you, but move toward accommodating each other. That's the good thing in a marriage. You can move toward accommodating each other. So you stay open, you stay appreciative, and even protective of your, of your partner's individuality. There have been a lot of great books written, and some of the titles really give us an indication of what we're up against uh, with husbands and wives. You all know the famous men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? Yeah, we're both from different planets. Sometimes it seems like that. Uh, Another book that I really enjoyed was called Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. Have you heard of that one? That's an old, old book. But basically, men are able to compartmentalize. If you think of a waffle, there's a bunch of little compartments in that waffle, aren't they? Men are like that. They can put something in a drawer and file it away and not think about it again. Whereas a woman, guys, listen to me, a woman is like spaghetti where everything is touching the other things and it all interconnects and you don't know where one piece ends and where one, in, one piece begins. Everything affects us all at once. We do not compartmentalize. We are not waffles. Uh, another book, Men Are Clams, Women Are Crowbars. <laughs> we will tend to pry open your hearts, men. We want to know what's going on on the inside of you. You know, Tony and I, um, we've had a, a difficult situation uh, in our family that we've been working with. And the other night something happened and it dawned on me. I wanted to talk to Tony about it. I wanted to hear what he was thinking about it. And the word fellowship came up in my heart because I couldn't really explain to him what I was wanting in that moment. But I realized 
I wanted to fellowship with Tony about this situation. I wanted to share how I felt. I wanted him to share how he felt. I wanted us to just discuss it in that way. But the word fellowship, when I, when I was able to share that with him, it was like he got it. He understood what I needed. And we had a very good conversation, and I felt like I got what I needed that night. So sometimes it's just a matter of semantics, isn't it? It's how you present it to your spouse. Um, I would say, just trust the Holy Spirit to give you the right words. But you can learn these things, too. And reading books like this helps you understand the differences and then what is a reasonable expectation of that person that you married. Men, you have to expect that they're going to be like spaghetti. There are some women who can compartmentalize. I've met a few of them. Most of us, though, are like spaghetti. Women, your husbands are going to be clams, and unless they're just very verbal. And there are some guys like that, too. But in, in a general sense, we need to know kind of what a guy is like and what a girl is like, and then be okay with that, respect it. It seems like we're from different worlds speaking different languages sometimes, and that makes it difficult. But um, there's common ways that women are and common ways that men are. Uh, I saw a commercial where the tagline, the end of the commercial, I can't even remember um, what the commercial was about, but what I remember was the very last line of it, and it said, Men, easier fed than understood. We understand that, women. They, they want food. They want sex. They're happy. <laughs> Men, those two things don't make us happy. <laughs> you know, women, women have different things that make them happy. So to understand each other is really, really important. Our ability to understand and empathize with feelings and experiences of your spouse, that's called validation. And validation is really important in, when you're going to navigate through conflict because we all need to be heard and we all need to be understood. And it has nothing to do whether you agree or disagree with your spouse, but we just need this for ourselves from our spouses. We need that feeling of being heard and being validated. Validating your mate's feelings as being important and real to him doesn't mean that you accept his view as truth or reality. And this is interesting because I think sometimes we mix the two up. We think that if we validate somebody, that means we think that what they're saying is true. What we're doing when we validate somebody is saying, I hear you and I understand that that's your view. Viewpoint and reality need to be dealt with separately. Validation comes first. I hear you. I understand what you're trying to say. And if you don't understand what they're trying to say, then you start asking them questions to get them to tell you more, to use different words perhaps to describe what they're going through. People are much more open to hearing facts after their viewpoint has been validated. Let's say, for example, let's say that the husband in the family is the one who manages the finances, all right? He knows where the finances go, he knows how much they have, he knows what they can do, what they can't do. The wife comes to, comes to him and says, I want our home to look really nice. We're having people over next week. I would love to get a new couch and a set of chairs, you know, to make things look better. 
So she put, presents her viewpoint, I want our home to look nice. And then he has to come back with the fact of money is tight. Right now we can't afford to do that. But the best thing he could do is not give her the fact right after she's given him her viewpoint, right? But to say, I hear you. I understand. I want our home to look nice too. Right now, we don't have what we we don't have the money that we can spend on things like that, but here's what we can do, you know, and then come up with something else. I will help you clean the house. We can maybe uh, touch up, paint some areas. You know, there's different things you can do. Husbands, you can make your wife feel better about things without doing everything that she wants. And, and women will typically, they'll meet you halfway, guys. It's not an all or nothing proposition most of the time. No one grows or truly changes from the heart unless he is first accepted as he is. Jesus taught us that, didn't he? While we were yet sinners, he came and died for us. He accepted us as we were, and he knew he could work with us and bring us to the point that he wanted us. But no one grows or truly changes from the heart unless they are first accepted, and that's what validation does for each other. We do our best, so we do our best to learn about the differences, but you know what? We still get discouraged sometimes with our spouse because they're not just like us. Why do we get so frustrated with the way they do things? And how many of you can raise your hand? You don't have to because you're sitting next to your spouse, but in your heart, raise your hand if you agree with me that we still get frustrated with the way they do things, right? I think a lot of this has to do with our expectations. Husbands, let me remind you that your wives probably grew up watching Disney movies and probably grew up wanting to be a Disney princess and probably expected you to come riding into her life on a white horse and be that prince charming to her and save her from the evil of the world and make everything better and, you know, live happily ever after, right? That is what we grow up with. That does cause expectations on the inside of us. That's kind of the root sometimes of our expectations. And we, we don't realize it. It's kind of subconscious, but it's actually there. Uh, the way we know that those expe expectations are still there deep inside of us is when they don't get met. When your husband is not the Prince Charming that you thought he was, something happens on the inside, and it's like, oh, wait a minute. This wasn't what I expected, and I'm unhappy, and then, you know, but you don't really put the words to it. It's more just kind of a feeling that just kind of goes through a woman, and, and then she starts getting a little grouchy, and then, you know, she gets a little unhappy, and the guys are like, what's wrong with you? What happened? You know, but it's just an expectation, a subconscious expectation was not met. So it helps if you just kind of stop and think about it. Was there something that I was expecting that might be unrealistic here? And that's where the truth can come up. And the Lord can help you with those things. He'll, he'll explain some things that you don't really understand about even yourself. And so we always want to turn to him when we're, when we're confused. Guys, if you're confused, turn to the Lord. He knows your wife. He knows her inside and out. And he'll be able to help you understand her. I think the thing is we really expected marriage to make us happy, didn't we? Did anybody in here get married because they wanted to be unhappy? No. 
No, we really thought marriage would make us happy. We really believed that ending part, and they lived happily ever after. That's what we expected. And, it, and we get that a lot of the times, but not all the time. They say it's not whether or not you chose the right person, but whether you choose to be the right person. Each of us has to be responsible for ourselves. We can't be responsible for the other person. We can't make them be what we want them to be. We can only change ourselves. All the psychologists say that. All the smart people say that. The only person you can change is yourself. So be that person to your spouse. And what happens is then you start sowing into their life. And we all know in here, we all know what it means, sowing and reaping. And when we sow good things, we reap good things. So changing yourself is a way of sowing into your spouse, changing yourself towards the things that God would have you do. It's worth it. Here's something I like that Dr. Dobson said. He said, a good marriage is not one where perfection reigns. It's a relationship where a healthy perspective overlooks a multitude of unresolvables. Now, we don't like that word, do we? Unresolvable. Most of us are fixers, or we try to change things we don't like. The first principle of mental health is accept that which cannot be changed. There are some things about your spouse you are not going to be able to change. I think some of us have been praying a revised version of the serenity prayer. Lord, help me change that which I cannot accept. <laughs> but you know what? In our marriages, for all the rough edges that can never be smoothed and the faults which can never be eradicated, what we want to do is we want to try to develop the best possible perspective and determine in our minds to accept reality as it really is. Change that which can be altered. Explain that which can be understood. Teach that which can be learned. You heard Tony talk about asking me to teach him how to do certain things, you know, in communicating with me. Uh, revise that which can be improved. Resolve that which can be settled. Negotiate that which is open to compromise. Create the best marriage possible from the raw materials brought by two imperfect human beings with two distinctly unique personalities. Remember, Tony was talking about uh, the family of origin, how you were raised, what you saw in your families. We're bringing that into the marriage, too. This all, that all plays into who you are and how things are going in your marriage. You can live happily, though imperfectly, ever after. And I think that's something that Tony and I have both accepted, is that we can live happily, though imperfectly. I don't expect him to be perfect anymore. I don't expect that white horse to be coming through the door at any minute, you know. I don't expect what I used to expect from him, but I'm happy. And I think that has just come with working with each other, living life together, and, and inviting the Lord to work with us. One of the key verses for us when we first realized that the Lord wanted us together was the one about the, the triple braided cord. Do you remember that one in the Old Testament, that it's not easily broken? We have always wanted the Lord to be that third cord with us. 
So there's three of us working in this marriage together. And that has made for a very good, though imperfect, marriage. All right. Well, I'll share a few things here. That was wonderful. And, um, you know, that whole thing about expectations. Um, when we have expectations up here and reality is here, the difference between your expectations and your reality is your measure of disappointment or your measure of frustration. And a lot of times we have, if, you know, if the bottom, you know, the floor is zero and up here is ten, you know, somebody may have a seven of, in their relationship, but because they're always looking at a 10, then they're always focused on the imperfections, what's not right, and they lose the gratitude for the seven that they have. And because their focus is on what they don't have, their marriage seems worse than it really is. And so um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the differences here. Just, we'll just take a few minutes. Um, marriage is when you agree to spend the rest of your life sleeping in a room that's too warm beside someone who's sleeping in a room that's too cold. There is... Um, we are not Siamese twins. Your spouse is not your clone. And um, I, I'm going to test because I know that next to probably Augustine and Martin Luther... Um, Pastor Mark is the greatest Bible scholar of all time. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, of course, but Pastor Mark's right up there in the top four. So I know that this is a highly advanced, highly knowledgeable congregation. And um, there is only one New Testament promise that I know of concerning marriage. One New Testament promise concerning marriage. Not a, not a commandment, not, an, not a, um, you know, it, 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 it's a promise. Does anybody know what that one New Testament promise is? Miss Brenda got it right. That's because you've been sitting under Pastor Mark's ministry all these years. Because you've been, that's right. Oh, well, that's a different, different interpretation there that I wasn't really looking at. Yes, after 60 years, I'm tired of you too. <laughs> um, yeah, Brenda is right. Uh, the verse is 1 Corinthians 7, 28. If you know of another New Testament Bible promise concerning marriage, let me know. I'd like to get educated. But 1 Corinthians 7, 28 says, Those who marry will have trouble in the flesh. Those who marry shall have trouble in the flesh. The NIV, New International Version, says, Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. The Message Version says, When you marry, you take on additional stress. In an already stressful time. And this one is very nice. The New English Bible says, When you marry, uh, but those who marry will have pain and grief in this bodily life. 
it kind of reminds me of the lady that said, you know, when I got married, I thought I was getting the ideal. After a while, I found out I had gotten into an ordeal. And then she said, and now I'd kind of like a new deal. <clears throat> Somebody else said that marriage is nature's way of keeping people from fighting with strangers. Seriously, though, your marriage can be good. It, it, there, there will be conflict. There will be disagreement. And a lot of people are thrown by that. You know, I thought it was just going to be all, like Lisa said, this Cinderella, white horse, you know, type, charming, con continual enchantment. Um, but in order to have a, a good marriage, it, a good marriage is not based on the absence of conflict. It's based on learning how to manage differences. And notice I didn't say solving differences because when people talk about solving a problem in marriage, subliminally what they mean by solving a problem in their marriage is fixing their spouse. They want to make their spouse be like them. And I say this from some degree of, of experience because I know for the first few years of our marriage, um, when I realized how different Lisa was than me, uh, I just thought, well, if she just become like me, then we won't have any more problems. If she would just think like I think, process things like I process them, then uh, we would not have any problems. Um, uh, Professional counselor, there's a guy I played a lot of tennis with, and he just happens to be a professional counselor. And we were chatting one day after playing tennis, and, and we got on to talking about some marriage counseling issues. And he told me that based on some of the best research available, now, I might want to jot this down. He said 67% of marriage conflicts will never be resolved. <laughs> In the average marriage. In the average marriage, 67% of conflicts will never be solved. He said they have to be managed. Now, let me just give you an example. There, people are hardwired certain ways. For example, Lisa, and you can go and you can study the different personality types, you know, the sanguine, the life of the party, the melancholy, you know, they kind of think about things deeply, um, the choleric, you know, the, the bulldozer personality, the phlegmatic, the steady, you know, person. You know, some of that stuff is kind of hardwired on the inside of us. And there, there's problems with thinking that way, even though there's some truth to that. In other words, somebody can't just say, you know, well, I'm just choleric. And then use that as an excuse to be rude to everybody. You know, well, maybe your choleric needs to get a little sanctified. Are, are you listening to me? So, yeah, you're, you're hardwired a choleric, but you can learn to tame that choleric a little bit. Um, you know, that type of thing. Mark's about to wave a hanky. He's getting, he's getting real blessed here. Um, 
Lisa and I had a, a situation early in our marriage. We were staff members at a... this. I, I went to teach at Raymond in 1983, but prior to that, I was an assistant pastor at a church for three and a half years. And, of course, with Lisa being my wife, we were expected to go to the doors at the end of church, and the expectation was that we would greet people as they were leaving church. Well, because of my personality... You know, my thing was, okay, when you greet people leaving church, you want to greet as many people as you possibly can. So, you know, you're kind of, uh, I mean, you don't want to be a politician, but, you know, it's just, hey, good to see you. Thank you for coming. Good to see you. And so Lisa and I were standing side by side, and I'm trying to greet as many people as I possibly can. Well, I'm a lot more, is it okay to say I'm more extroverted? And, and so, but Lisa, the way she processes everything is she doesn't want to shake a hundred hands. What she wants to do is she wants to find that one person that her heart connects with. And she's very mercy motivated. And so that one person that comes by that is having this real challenge, she wants to listen to that person and focus on that person, talk to that person and comfort them and pray with them and things like that. Well, that's hard to do when I'm have trying to greet 250 people. And so she'd block the line. And I'm thinking, would you get out of here? Just we're glad you came to church. Just keep, keep moving. Keep moving. I've got a lot of hands to shake here. And Lisa's over there saying, bless your heart. And, they know, brother, you know, just, and so we actually, we had, we had some disagreements. I mean, we were, you know, and I was, you know, I was, you know, but I've got to do my job for God. So get those people moving. And, and, you know, so, and she's, but she knows that God's, there's a connection there and all that type of thing. And so finally we realized, well, the pastor never said we both had to stand on the same side of the door. So what we did was she stood on one side of the door and talked to one person while I greeted 250 people leaving. And it worked out good, didn't it? But see, what I wanted to do, I wanted her to be like me and want to be the extrovert greeting everybody. And she wanted me, now listen, she, did, she didn't want me to be like her, but you know what? She wanted me to respect her uniqueness and her individuality. And I didn't really do that at first because I thought it was getting in the way of my doing my job. But, but later, as I matured, now take note of this, Pastor Mark, I matured. As I matured, I saw, hey, there's value in what she's doing. And I quit trying to make her to be like me. Let me tell you what happens in every relationship. There's two dimensions of every relationship. Stage number one is what we call opposites attract. Stage number two, and this usually happens four or five years into the relationship. Stage number one is opposites attract. Stage number two is opposites attack. We will either 
complete each other or we will compete against each other. There is a principle that counselors have identified. It's called the law of complementary need. The law of complementary need. And the law of complementary need says, it's basically opposites attract. It says that people will be drawn to one another who have complementary strengths. That's why very often you will see an organized person married to a slob. Let me, let me, a, a less than organized person. The law of complementary need. I'm glad this is a good-humored crowd. Um, the law of complementary need says that a very talkative, outgoing person will very often be drawn to a very quiet, uh, introverted person. Now, see, what happens in the early stages is opposites attract. So the, the person who's quiet, who doesn't like to talk a lot, will be drawn toward the real talkative person because they get to be quiet. (laughs) Because the talkative person is happy to do all the talking. (laughs) So they're drawn to one another. But what happens about five years into the marriage, the talkative person kind of runs out and looks at the you know looks across the table and says why don't you ever talk to me and the quiet person says what I never talk to you you do all the talking well I want you to talk now so now after five years of you know talking the, the talkative person decides, okay, I'm tired of doing all the talking. I want to hear from you. Well, that wasn't the deal. <laughs> and it may be, too, that about three years into it, the non-talkative person was thinking, when is this person ever going to shut up? Because <laughs> it was kind of nice at first for them to do all the talking, but I'm kind of tired of them doing all the talking now. So you go from opposites attract to opposites attack. And see, that law of complementary need gives way to the law of familiarity. And in familiarity, you just become so accustomed to the other person that you begin to take them for granted And you actually begin to devalue them. The thing that you found charming about them. See, the the neat freak who marries the less than organized person. Because when they were first falling in love with each other, the neat person felt needed. Because they could come to the rescue of this less than organized person. I feel needed. But you know, after cleaning up that guy's messes for several years, you get tired. You don't want to be needed. You want them to grow up and pick up after themselves. 
But see, you go from opposites attract to opposites attack. Now, here's the thing. When somebody's hardwired one way and somebody else's hardwired another way, they're probably, it's never going to be where one person becomes like the other person. But what can happen is that you can learn to grow a little bit toward the middle. For example, the hyper-perfectionistic person can learn to relax just a little bit if the cups aren't all in perfect order. (laughs) And the less than organized person can maybe put all their dirty clothes in one pile (laughs) rather than having a a trail. (laughs) Are you with me? In other words, you don't fix the other person, but you learn to manage. Negotiation. (laughs) Negotiation is a very important marital skill. We've got a lot um, that we could talk about, but let's do this. Let's Let's break for tonight. Let's close with a scripture, all right? Proverbs chapter 24, verses 3 and 4 says, Through wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. I'm going to tell you one thing. Good marriages don't just happen. They take work. They take commitment. You have to work through a lot of things. The number one enemy of all marriages is selfishness. Through wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for every person that's here tonight. For every couple. Lord, I thank you that you'll minister healing and health to all of our lives. Father, help us to be healthy and to become healthy individually, emotionally. Help us to have a true perspective of the person that you've called us to be. To be the man, to be the woman of God that you've called us to be. And then, Father, help us to have the kind of marriage that will truly represent Jesus loving the church and the church respecting Jesus. May each of our marriages be a three-dimensional living color, uh, working model of Jesus and the church. Father, we thank you that for anybody who's dealing with past hurts and past issues, that Father, you'll help us, help us to see the truth, to know the truth, and to be so filled and flooded with the love and the acceptance of God that our lives are healthy and whole, and we can bring that health into our relationship with our spouse. Be a blessing. Be a, a godly parent. Be a godly spouse. Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said.